0: Last year's Chips and Science Act spawned new programs across the government. Among them is a $500 million Commerce Department initiative known as Tech Hubs. Now Commerce's Economic Development Administration is asking the public how the Tech Hub program might work. We get details now from the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Alejandra Castillo. Ms. Castillo, good to have you with us.
1: Great to be with you, Tom, and looking forward to this great conversation.
0: And before we get to the details, what exactly does the Commerce Department envision a tech hub being?
1: Right now, we're looking at tech hubs as an opportunity to have communities and places across the country build and evolve innovation centers to accelerate a region's evolution into a global leader in an industry of the future. So think about it. This is an opportunity for us to look at communities, their assets, the industries that are in those regions, and think about what are the different ingredients that would need to be in place in order to create a productive tech hubs. And I want to also say tech hubs is an opportunity for the U.S., to look at economic development alongside national security as well. So there's a lot in the legislation, and I invite your listeners to look at the legislation to see those areas that we're looking at with regards to the industries.
0: A lot of times people look to Silicon Valley, which is actually no longer Silicon, but it's a valley where there is a tech hub, you might say, one of the original tech hubs of the modern economic era. And the one thing that really spawned it was the closeness of very large, successful, and high-end computer science and electrical engineering programs academically. Is that a requirement, do you think, for the next set of tech hubs?
1: I'll draw you back to the legislation, to the statute, because the statute actually requires there are five particular must-have ingredients and then 13 additional ingredients that could also come into play. You're absolutely right. You look at Silicon Valley industries that really were at the forefront. You may also want to look at Austin, Texas. You may also want to look at the research triangle. But there were other ingredients like a university, community colleges, the workforce development as well component to it. Unions were participating in this as well. So when I mentioned the different ingredients that come into producing a tech hub, Uh, or creating the tech hubs of the future um there are many actors and players and that's exactly why this rfi this request for information is so important because there is no particular recipe so to speak we are asking the public tell us what's happening in your communities how do you see your region being competitive for tech hubs give us some guidance and some other elements that we may not be privy to as we think about the creation and the design of tech hubs.
0: Because some tech hubs, I guess you can call them tech hubs, the type of idea you're talking about, have occurred somehow spontaneously in, let's call the ashes of old industries. I'm thinking of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, very much a high-tech town built over what used to be steel mills. And I don't know what the secret ingredient there was, but I think workforce and academia are two big elements.
1: Correct. And like that, you know, I travel this country extensively. Like that, you have um, so many different places where there has been a legacy industry. I think about Wichita, Kansas with aerospace. We just made very big investments under the American Rescue Plan in 21 different regions across the country, which were based of true assets in, in different industries. That was the Build Back Better regional challenge. Tech Hub is different. Tech Hub is more on the regional side we're looking at no particular city or particular boundaries we're looking at regions that have an array of assets that can actually be in some ways futuristic if you will because these are industries that are still in a phase that with a certain level of infusion of resources and capital they can get to that next level of growth and scalability and again there are many notions of what a tech hub is From the EDA perspective, a tech hub is not a building. A tech hub is a region that comes into play to really spur that economic vitality and activity.
0: We're speaking with Alejandra Castillo. She's Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. And there are areas of the country that once had hubs, maybe not tech hubs, but maybe it was textiles. Maybe it was shoe manufacturing, all of these industries that are pretty much gone for the most part. And yet you have an area and you still have people, but you don't have those tech hub maybe ingredients. There's no famous engineering school nearby. Is it the sense of commerce, your sense, that investments can be made for where there's only the willingness in the workforce, but yet somehow spawn the other ingredients needed to have a really vibrant hub that has sustainability?
1: Tom, I know that this conversation today will focus on tech hubs, but I also want to make sure that I'm introducing another program that also EDA is building out, and that's Recompete. The Recompete program, we received $200 million. And that program, I'm bringing it to bear because that program is to focus in areas that are highly distressed. And it's important to note We're working on tech hubs where there may be some ingredients, some assets, some elements that can actually spring up a technology of the future. But then, those areas that are highly distressed, we need to bring them along. And that's what Recompete is. So, with these two particular programs that came out of the Chips and Science Act, EDA is now able to be much more holistic in the investments that we make because we try to meet communities where there are. It would be irrational to think that a a community that has been distressed for 30, 40 years is all of a sudden going to become a tech hub. We want to make sure that we're guiding along, shepherding along with these very targeted investments to make sure that communities are putting in those ingredients.
0: I see the distinction. So getting back to the tech hubs then, who are you reaching out to with this RFI? I mean, what types of people, organizations, are in the best position to respond.
1: We have sent out this RFI very very broadly, both to private sector as well as to public entities, whether it's the mayors, the governors, obviously our congressional members, to universities, to community colleges, to unions, to nonprofit organizations, to philanthropy as well. The investments that the government will make are just a portion we're going to need not just a very broad array of stakeholders to be involved in the design, but also in the investment side as well. Hence why I mention not just the government and the private sector, but also philanthropic entities that will come in to make the investments even more robust.
0: So it could be philanthropic entities and also investing for profit entities.
1: Correct, correct. Again, the tech hubs, as we have analyzed it through history, have been made possible because of very eclectic group of individuals coming in with a very strategic mission to propel a particular industry. And that's what you've seen in so many places across the country that have been very successful.
0: Right, because a $500 million program for commerce, that's like a tenth of some of the single investments made in startups that produce nothing, frankly, for a few years.
1: Well, I also want to put it into context. You know, the Chips and Science Act actually authorized TechHub at $10 billion. Under the Omnibus bill, we received $500 million dollars. A bit of a small down payment on it. So it is our interest to make sure that as we move forward with the Tech Hub design, the Tech Hub designation, the Tech Hub planning grants, that we're actually looking at those places that are well suited to be successful so that we have a very positive showing to get the remaining dollars and be able to invest more broadly across the country.
0: And let's say these nonprofits and these non-governmental organizations, if you will, you know, the domestic ones and private investors come together and agree and kind of synchronize. Here's a good potential tech hub. What is it that the government will buy with the government investment?
1: So let me just uh, hone in on one very special element there. The statute requires consortia. So these entities will have to come together. That's really the secret sauce of EDA programs. It's the coalitions, it's the partnerships that must come together with a shared vision of what Tech Hubs is. Once that is done, the proposals will come in. We will be releasing the notice of funding opportunities sometime later in the spring to make sure that not only are we letting individuals know what type of investments we're looking at. And that's why this request for information is so important because this is how we as the government will be able to actually put in place elements that are much more attuned to regional economic development efforts.
0: But the federal funding will mostly be for purposes of planning and consortia development and not necessarily the investments in the elements of the tech hub itself.
1: That's correct. There'll be a phased approach of designations, phased approach with regards to planning grants that will be provided. And then the award, which will range at a much higher level, will be done afterwards when these planning grants have been um, executed.
0: And how do you know when you're finished? I mean, you know, going back to the original Silicon Valley, you know, that turned out to have funded not just a industry, but a region of a couple of million people that is self-sustaining now, and it has moved, as I mentioned earlier, from silicon to mainly software now, but the ecosystem of development, of funding, of venture capital and so forth seems to be self-sustaining for the foreseeable future. How do you know when a tech hub has made it?
1: Well, I think you just made the case. It's that self-sustainability. When the region in itself becomes there enough of the critical mass to propel it and to make it self-sustaining where the government may not need to make those big investments any longer but maybe the private sector universities, nonprofit, philanthropy are all coming together to continue to evolve and sustain that growth that's one of many elements I also have to say that it's about uh, having a, a very inclusive economy and an economy that not only is good for those who are enmeshed in the industry, but also for the surrounding areas where workers are part of that industry, where we have a much more integrated and inclusive element of the entire society. Some people may argue that Silicon Valley has been fantastic, but there have been communities that have also been left behind. Under the Biden administration, our commitment is to make sure that it's from the bottom up, middle out, and that we don't leave communities behind. So that's another element of well, knowing whether it's been successful.
0: And just from a program standpoint, the RFI is out. When does it close and what is the immediate next step once you have your comments and information gathered?
1: So the RFI was issued a few weeks ago. It's a 30-day window. I believe it closes March 16th. We're looking at folks from all walks of life. Please uh, send us your best ideas, your concepts. We're going to be reviewing that very carefully and taking much note as we continue to develop and design the program.
0: And again, the funding opportunities, those will come later this year, later this spring towards summer.
1: Towards summer, we will be issuing a notice of funding opportunity, NOFO. So be on the lookout for that as well.
0: Alejandra Castillo is Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA.
3: be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms.
2: Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware
3: of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law. my mom, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Man. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself
2: you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that?
3: So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that My life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite. Taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize
2: it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities uh, that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations.
3: did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion